0: 1 Kings 21, beginning in verse 1, the word reads this way. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it, or... If it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, and he said to her Because I spoke to, to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Pick this up. This is the same hissing voice that Eve heard in the garden. Did God really say? Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take take him out and stone him to death. And the men of this city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent them, they proclaimed a fast, set Naboth at the, head of the, at the head of the people, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king." So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive. But dead. And as soon as Ahab heard Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. The story of Naboth and his vineyard is a sobering, pathetic, and outrageous story, honestly. Even though God has spoken to Ahab on many occasions... Uh, through this, his prophet Elijah, Ahab continues in his tone-deaf life. He spends all his time thinking about the things he doesn't have. Here we find a king who lives in an ivory palace. He has all that he has ever wanted, yet right now he wanted more. He wanted Naboth's vineyard. So he goes to this man Naboth, who had a neighboring vineyard. He offers to buy it. He, 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 offers, he even offers to give him another vineyard better than the one he already has. And you can, you know, can you believe what Naboth said to him? He told Ahab he would not sell him his vineyard. He's talking to the king here, right? He would not sell him this, his vineyard that's been in his family for, for all of the vineyard's uh, history. In Israel. This particular vineyard. Held a special place. In Naboth's family. This vineyard. Was an inheritance. Notice in verses 3 and 4. This is said twice. In quick succession. The Lord forbid that I shall give you. The inheritance of my fathers. Then in verse 4. After he goes back to his house. To sulk. He's telling his wife. That, what Naboth said. I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers, all to turn into a vegetable plot. It's no doubt Naboth would have known where this land came from originally. It was first given to his fathers and now had come to be in his possession. And these vines that took so long to cultivate and to bear the kind of fruit that they had, this man was going to destroy all of his family all that his family had labored uh, for for years and to turn this uh, Naboth's vineyard into a vegetable garden. And here comes Jezebel who finds her husband, as the text says, vexed and sullen, being a crybaby, depressed, moping, wouldn't eat anything, wouldn't drink anything. Could only sit in his room and think about this little piece of land that he wanted so badly. Jezebel had seen him like this before. The previous chapter had finished verse 43. If you look at chapter 20, verse 43. And the king of Israel sent to his house, uh, went to his house, vexed and souled. She, she had seen him like this before. And she was going to deal with it again. On the surface, this seems like a minor story about a conflict between a king and one of the citizens of, uh, uh, one of his own citizens over the possession of a vineyard. But, but like every conflict in the Old Testament scriptures, this conflict belongs to that thin red line of conflict. That begins in Genesis 3.15. And it is consummated in the first and second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is no small event. Rather another stage in the conflict of the powers of darkness against the seed of God's people. Seeking to demean them and destroy them. And We've seen it before in the story of Elijah. And the conflict with Ahab. And here... And this is a miniature form is an illustration of the serpent seeking to, to crush the head of the woman, or the, the seed of the woman. This is why this man Naboth is so important in the Bible. He is clearly one of the 7000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. He's he's a man who is conscious of his primary responsibility. Uh, of God's covenant mercy to his people. And the thing that, that really irritated Ahab was this. He knew not only the covenant purposes of God and where his family fitted into, how, the, how he fitted into this, these covenant purposes of God, but he knew God's law with respect to the king and that the king was overstretching his authority Every king was commanded, was commanded by God to write out a kind of covenant with God. And part of that covenant was that he would not overextend his authority. And he would not be taken up by possessions. So this godly man, with this little vineyard, stands... Against the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent that seeks to crush this seed. Do you remember the exodus of Egypt? God had spoken about taking them out of the vegetable gardens of Egypt. And bringing them into the promised land and planting them there as a vine in a vineyard. And so, what's happening literally here is all kinds of symbolic, has all kinds of symbolic overlays in the scriptures. This is a mini narrative that points us to the meta narrative between God and the powers of darkness, in which He had rescued His people out of the vegetable plot and put them into this vineyard. This king of Israel was seeking to reverse what God had done to turn this man's vineyard back into the same vegetable plot of which they had been rescued from. Now, I can't say this for sure, but I want to believe that this is one of the passages that James had in mind when he penned his letter in the New Testament, and how it is that these powers of darkness operate And what happens uh, to, to, to bring us down into sin and rebellion against God. Ahab's course of action illustrates James' word on the nature of sin's progress. Look with me to James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has been conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the outline of Genesis 3 and 4, the fall of Adam and Eve and everything that happened after that. This is the same outline that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 11, where, where David has his massive sin with Bathsheba and then kills her husband and tries to cover it up. And this is the outline of Naboth's vineyard. Ahab's sin begins in the opening verses with a desire. He seeks satisfaction in something that God would not have him to possess. He is back to the old way of thinking that if I could only have this blank, if I could only have this or that, then satisfaction and joy will come my way. And actually, it's interesting that one of the elements that express that is, when he is denied what he wants, he begins to sulk. And he sulks in this passage because he has come face to face with the power of God And the life story of a very small and apparently insignificant individual. And his name is Naboth. So he goes into this, as um, Sinclair Ferguson said, this infantile regression. in his Scottish accent. Because he can't get away what... He, he, he can't get what he, what he wants, what he really wants. And it's in this, he is against Naboth because he is against God's word. And this is a model example of how men and women fall into sin. It's a model example how we all fall over and over into sin. Sin puts us against God and inevitably against others. And in this story, Ahab's sin is an explicit spirit of being against what God wants. That's that's what sin in the heart is. It all begins with a desire, which is against God. Then in the verses that follow, the sin is conceived through enticement. Every person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by their own desires. And this leads me to really our our first uh, observation from the text this morning. And then I'll get to the enticement. The ungodly desires of our hearts create space for sin to grow and choke out any possibility of a God glorifying life. All of us have desires. And in a lot of cases, these desires are not necessarily bad. Uh, however, if we're willing to do anything, even sin, to get it, we're showing that those, des- those desires are-, are more like idols in our heart. Now, it's necessary that, that I make it clear that, again, not all desires are a bad thing. In fact, if we look at what the psalmist said in Psalm 37, verse 4, where it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When we have our eyes set on the Lord, when we're delighting in the Lord, when we're treasuring Jesus, which is a phrase we say a lot here, and his redemptive work in our life, when we are, uh, then we become recipients of a gift from God. And you know what that gift is? New desires. However, these desires, they they do not just arise just come out of a vacuum. Rather, they are the very desires of God. His desires become our desires. In the the case of King Ahab in our text this morning, it's clear he was not delighting in the things of the Lord. He was only delighting in himself and his possessions what he wanted, and what he was going to take. Also notice Ahab's sin is conceived through enticement. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And then that desire, when it is enticed, it has has conceived and gives birth. We must take notice of the stimulus of Ahab's desires in the person of his wife. We'll get to this verse in a moment, but, but let's skip forward uh, just a bit and read verse 25, where it says, There was none who sold himself to do what, uh, what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, from Jezebel, his wife, incited. There are times in the lives of sinners, like ourselves when we have desires that lie unfulfilled externally. Because we have no opportunity or no power or or no energy to fulfill those desires, we should not mistake those situations for the overcoming of sin in our hearts. Because what we have here... Is that desire, as it is so often, is, is, it's meeting in, in, incitement or stimulation or encouragement to take what God has forbidden in our lives. And Jezebel, in this case, provides all the stimulation this man really needs. And the striking thing about her is that she was not there at first. She doesn't appear on the scene The reality is she's already embedded in the scenery of his life. She is in place because of his past failings. She already has a hold on him because of his weakness. And now she's at hand to incite him to take what God has already forbidden. It's almost as though God indicates to us in these ways that when we desire what is forbidden, the opportunity will come and the incitement will arise. And, and, and we have not yet externally failed because we are spiritually strong, but because of our spiritual weakness and our desire either has not yet met the opportunity or the, uh, or the actual temptation hasn't come our way. But when the solicitation comes, this man who, was, who, who has allowed this woman into his life, contrary to the law of God, makes him absolutely powerless in the face of incitement. And this is actually a very serious word to anyone who is dating or thinking about marriage. It really is. If two are not agreed from the beginning, they will not walk together. And here is a man who has allowed someone into his life, and she is there perpetually now to the end of his life. And he's made this tragic decision in his life and has no moral or spiritual resources, has no ability to steer uh, him away from, from the errors, errors that he could and will make in the future. And over and over again, knowing God's law, having signed God's law, having made a covenant with God at his very own coronation, again and again, his life is a life of spiritual compromise. Why did he do this? Undoubtedly, it's because Jezebel was a very beautiful and exciting woman. At first, probably treated him very well. His problem was he saw everything through his eyes instead of being a man of God and hearing the truth through his ears and listening to the voice of God. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've heard the words of burdened parents or burdened family members who say to me, or some of the other pastors here, my son just does not, he does not listen to me anymore. She is not listening to me anymore. Why? Because the problem is that their eyes have grown too large. Now, in this case, the problem is a woman, but it's not always a woman. Let me be clear before I get an email. Sometimes it's a man, and oftentimes it is. And here, the man has let something into his life that he can never get out, and he's done nothing to to build up a type of spiritual resources that he will need to to help him maintain any kind of spiritual uh, integrity in his life. It's possible to have these types of resources, by the way. It's possible to build up these types of resources. Many a man or woman has made egregious mistakes spiritually in their lives with disastrous consequences, but God does not abandon us because... That is true. Rather, God has the resources to enable us to live for his glory, even if it means we walk through this life with a limp. What kind of resources does God give us to help us in this life? Well, there's a lot, but in this case, I want us to think about biblical community for a second. The resource here that is at Ahab's disposal is biblical community. It's not just about the kind of spouse we choose for ourselves. It's not just about those whom we marry. There is is a much broader application in this passage. And we need to be mindful about who we surround ourselves with. We need biblical community in our lives massively. Don't, Don't miss that. Biblical community is a means of grace in the life of a believer in order to help each other discern desires, whether godly or ungodly, and to proclaim truth to one another. When we have ungodly desires, we need somebody that's going to tell us the truth. Biblical community, you and I need a real and genuine and intentional community, a community that will help us discern our desires, a community that will regularly and consistently tell us uh, to close our eyes and open our ears. Listen to the truth. We can't do this life alone. But yet all too often, we're guilty of neglecting this type of community like Ahab. In fact, he's heard time and time again the voice of Elijah speaking truth and yet he still ignored it. He pushed away and ignored any form of godly community in his life. Instead, he only listens to his wife. And she takes matters into her own hands, doesn't she? Devises a plan to falsely accuse Naboth of treason and blasphemy. She has him killed. Instead of listening to the truth in his ears, Ahab was led by his eyes. A man dies. He takes what isn't his. Not only do we need godly people in our lives, we we need them to speak truth to us. And we need to listen. But all of this wickedness does not go unnoticed by God. He's about to send out his prophet Elijah to deliver a message of justice for Naboth. Picking up in verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you Killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In this place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, Shall dogs lick your own blood? Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O enemy? He answered, I have found you, Because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. And I will cut you off from Ahab, every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth. And like the, the house of uh, Baasha the son of Ahijah. For your anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin, and of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone, who, uh, anyone uh, of his own who dies in open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. This is harsh words. Harsh judgment. But for God, don't feel guilty, don't feel uh, a victim of this. All of his judgments are just. The punishment fits the crime. But notice what happens next. And this, we could talk a lot more about that, but just for time's sake, we'll have to move forward. Notice this, there's a really fascinating portion that comes next. Something amazing happens. Verse 25 almost like an obituary that's being read about, about Ahab. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put Amazing. Here we have what seems to be a man who has been confronted by the truth and judgment of God. He's broken what he's heard Elijah say. And, God's, and God shows him grace. He shows mercy because of his brokenness, because of his humility. Now, if you're using the... English Standard Version of the Bible, you may notice the subheading is titled Ahab's Repentance. I was actually surprised to see that there are several commentators who disagree over what happens here. Was Ahab generally repentant? Or are we just observing some sort of penance? Well, we have to acknowledge God's response in verse 29. He does, in fact, show him mercy. He does relent from executing his judgment in that moment. What happens here is really is a bit mysterious, honestly. God clearly shows him some sort of mercy because of Ahab's humility. And this is... True all throughout the Bible, isn't it? Where God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. But in this specific case, I think this subtitle might be a little misleading. And I say this only because there is no indication of restoration. In fact, Ahab will soon die in battle in the very next chapter, 1 Kings 22... And in 2 Kings 9, Jezebel's pushed out of a window and falls to her death. And as the text says, the dogs literally ate and licked up her blood in order to fulfill what had been foretold. I personally, and I could be wrong here, okay? I'm okay with being wrong here. I think we're observing a man's penance and not Repentance. There is voluntary self-punishment, right? But no real change after this point. It's fascinating and probably something I I really need to study further. So don't come and ask me your questions. I don't know. (laughs) Regardless, we, we do have to acknowledge the immediate mercy given because of his humility and brokenness. And there's just something about this story that's easy to miss if we're not looking for it. It's easy to miss. There's something about this story that not only uh, points back to Israel's story of being brought out of the vegetable patch of Egypt and planted in the promised land as the vine of God's planting and Ahab destroying this little man Naboth, Who stood in his way in turning the Lord's vineyard back into a vegetable patch? There's something strikingly similar about this good and righteous man being accused of blasphemy by a false witness because of a plot of kings and queens. But the thing about Naboth's death, he was a man who died because of the sins of others but whose death was powerless to bring change or pardon or restoration. Change, pardon, and restoration would need to await the day when a man, another man would come and be falsely accused, strikingly accused of the, of the same crimes the man, this man Naboth has been accused of. Do you know why Jesus was executed? He was executed because he was found not guilty, but condemned to death for two crimes. First was blasphemy against God, and the second was treason against the king. So we see how this man fits into the grand design, the grand narrative of God. But Naboth's death did nothing for King Ahab, but bring condemnation and guilt, and shame. And it's almost as if the Old Testament is crying out for something more. It's crying out for another righteous man's death. Someone who would die because of the sins of others, who would not die because of their sins, but would actually die for the sins of others. The righteous for the unrighteous, as Peter says, to bring us to God. That's the story of Ahab. A righteous man dying. That's the story of Naboth. A righteous man dying because of the sins of the unrighteous. He could not save him. Whose life cries out for the coming of another righteous man whose death can save us. Who will even, as the serpent crushes his heel, he will crush the serpent's head. And you see, that's that's actually what King Ahab needed. He needed a savior who would crush the serpent's head and deliver him from the bondage of sin which he had sold himself to. It is a privilege to tell you today that there is a greater Naboth. We sang the song to this today. That Jesus is the better Adam. One who has crushed the head, the serpent's head, and can deliver you not just from the guilt of sin, but from the dominion of sin and set you free. And whatever dominion of sin that is left in the way of marks and influences in your life, that holds you, that, that holds you up even as those things continue to, to pull you back down and help you build those spiritual resources like community that is able to hold you up and hold you on this journey as you fight the same temptations and struggles that still surround you so that you are able to live as God's free man or as God's free woman. This is where we need to go, isn't it? Every single Lord's Day, Every single worship service, even if his name is not mentioned, this is where we need to go. Jesus is the reason preaching works in our lives. And in our passage this morning, the death of Naboth points to the death of Jesus Christ. It's not what is said in the exposition that meets everyone's circumstances or everybody's particular situations and says what everybody needs to say, but because it points to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is able to break the dominion of sin in our lives. We must see Jesus Christ. No matter where we are in the scriptures, you need to see Jesus. And the gospel of Jesus is the power of God to salvation. Jesus is the source of our restoration. He is our only access to God. Not only that, as we hear this good news over and over again, guess what? We begin to treasure Jesus. When we we treasure it, guess what? We're delighting in it. And as the psalmist says, as we delight in the Lord, we treasure Jesus. He will give us the desires of our hearts. Desires of the heart can be a good thing. And this is the good news of the gospel. New life. New desires. New purposes. May God give us a desire to live a life worthy of our calling. And may we not reject the community he's given us as a means of grace to point us to Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word that shows us this tragic story. But God, may this tragic story point us to Jesus. Our only hope in life and death. God, may May, we, may you build within us a, may your spirit build within us a, a discernment to see our desires. To be able to discern what, is, what are good desires and what are, what are ungodly desires. God, build up around us, surround us with, with community, a community of people like an Elijah who, who is willing to, to tell us the truth. To tell us to close our eyes and to see Christ, to believe the truth. God, help us today to do those things. But more importantly, help us to see Jesus. To see the, unrighteous, the, the, the righteous man dying for the unrighteous man and woman. May we treasure him today as we continue to sing. We ask all that in Christ's name. Amen.